Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of a lecture by Professor Richard Carney, the Charles B. Selig Chair of Philosophy at Boston College. His lecture, The Politics of Memory Between History and Imagination, was given as part of the 2014 Irish Memory Studies Network lecture series. Thank you very much. What I want to do uh, in this talk, which sort of be a mix of the academic and the conversational, is to look at the politics of memory in terms of an exchange between history and story. Um, bearing in mind that in many languages it is the same word for both, Geschichte in German, Histoire in Fran- French, uh, you can raconter um, une histoire, is to tell a story, but faire histoire is to make history and do history. So it has that ambiguity. In English we have two words for it, history and story, but there is of course an etymological link between them. And I want to sort of explore the crisscrossing and interweaving of fiction and story in terms of memory. And to do so in terms of two main questions. One, how do we realize our debt to the historical past? And two, how do we respect the rival claims of memory and forgetfulness? When is it right to remember? When is it right to forget? When do we suffer from too much memory? When do we suffer from too much forgetfulness? So I want to um, take this in two parts, narrative and history, and then narrative and memory. Uh, It'll be a relatively formal address with uh, parentheses where I hope to go into some examples, particularly as the paper progresses. I won't go beyond 50 minutes, and hopefully we'll have plenty of time for question and answer. So, a key power of narrative, according to Paul Ricoeur, is to provide ourselves with a figure of the past, to make what is absent somehow present. Translated into the idioms of historical time, this means the capacity to liberate ourselves from the blind amnesia of the now by projecting futures and retrieving pasts. Projection is an emancipatory function of narrative, retrieval a testimonial function. Both resist the tendency to reduce history to a depthless presence, to indifference, to a one-dimensional now. In the third volume of Time and Narrative, Paul Ricoeur analyzes the testimonial role of narrative in historical retrieval. A poetics of narrative, he maintains, must include a sense of ethical responsibility to what he calls the debt we owe the dead. We would not be able to respond to the summons of historical memory were it not for the mediating and schematizing function of imagination. He's borrowing there from Kant primarily. A function which provides us with figures for events that happened, but are suppressed from memory. The responsibility here, he says, is twofold. On the one hand, narrative provides us with figural reconstructions of the past that enable us to see and hear things long since gone. On the other, it stands in for, by standing for, représentance is the phrase used, by standing for these things as events that actually happened. We don't invent them. Here we encounter the right of the past as it once was to incite and rectify our narrative retellings of history. 
as we fall into pure revisionism or um, Holocaust denial or fantasy. We recall, in this manner, our debt to those who have lived, suffered, and died. We remind ourselves, for example, that gas ovens and gulags did exist, that Nagasaki and Cambodia were bombed, that political crimes and injustices have been inflicted on innocent people over the centuries. These were not abstractions. They actually happened. Now, the ostensible paradox here is, of course, that it should be narrative that responds to the ethical summons to respect the reality of the past. It's ironic that it should be poetics that comes to the service of ethics as a means of recalling our debt to those who suffered and died and are often forgotten. But in this case, narrative serves to recall the neglected others of history. Furrow's recur remarks, I quote, it is always through some transfer from same to other in empathy and imagination that the other that is foreign or forgotten is brought closer. Think, for example, of the importance of movies like Schindler's List or Life is Beautiful uh, for a felt remembrance of Holocaust suffering. I'll come back to these examples at the end. This process of transfer, however, is by no means obvious. In addition to narrative reenactment, which reappropriates the past as present under the category of the same, historical imagination also has a duty to the otherness of the past by way of expressing the past precisely as past, that is, as something that is no more and can never be fully translated into the present. There's always what Walter Benjamin calls in his essay on the translator an untranslatable kernel, some element of otherness that can never be made totally familiar or present in any form of representation. The narrative act of transfer by analogy seeks to address this paradox. It enables us to transport ourselves into alien or eclipsed moments of history, refiguring them as similar to our present experience, failing which we would not be able to recognize them, while simultaneously acknowledging their dissimilarity as distinct and distant. In short, the narrative reappropriation of the past operates according to this double responsibility, responsibility to the past as past, other, to some extent always irretrievable and untranslatable, and at the same time to the past as present, as representation of what we call reconfiguration. To the extent that it remains ethically and politically responsible to historical memory then, imagination refuses to allow reconstruction to become a reduction of the other to the self. It, it resists absorbing difference into sameness. So when we talk of narratives providing us with analogies of the past as it actually was, we do well to appreciate the analogous as it actually was, come, the, the as, which is a two-way trope of absence and presence. This is actually at the root also of the hermeneutic model of translation, where there are two, as it were, errors in translation. One is to render the foreign language too familiar, to absorb it into the host language, thereby eliminating the guest. The guest can only remain a guest if the guest remains different from the host, even when it has been received into the host language. On the other hand, we have to avoid the tendency to reduce the host language to the guest language, to surrender and sort of do sort of a bad translation in terms of a literal translation, where you try to serve the, the meaning, the literal meaning, but you don't take any liberties. And so it becomes servile and subordinate and poor as a translation. This point merits critical development. Narratives of the past compromise an interweaving of fiction and history. 
Once we recognize that historical narrative entails a refiguring of past events, we can admit that the telling of histories of history involves the deployment of certain literary practices, plot, composition, character, points of view, and so on. Think of Michelet's version of the French Revolution, or indeed Simon Schama's, where the deployment of narrative um, uh, stylistics and rhetorics is, is, is very much to the fore. And of course, in terms of the theory and philosophy of history, Hagen White would perhaps push this to its most uh, extreme position, where history sometimes becomes fiction. This is why the same text can be at once a great work of art and a great work of history. Michelet's work is a perfect case in point. Or, on the other hand, Tolstoy's. We learn a lot about the Napoleonic invasion of, of Russia, uh, but we also enjoy literature at its best. That's not to say Michelet and Tolstoy are the same. They're not. One is an historian, one is a writer, and that difference is essential, of course. The same text can tell us about the way things actually happened in the past at the same time that it makes us feel, see, and live the past as if we were there. And it's not generally the business of the historian to do the latter. As Aristotle says in the Poetics, the historian, in stricto sensu, recounts the past as it happened one thing after another, meta. Whereas the poet recounts the past one thing because of another, dia. And that difference in the dia and the meta is essential because where the historian, according to Aristotle, simply chronicles facts, uh, empirical, statistical facts, as we would say today, um, logistical, the poet uh, represents and reconfigures the past in terms of its eidos, its essence. And that requires what Aristotle called the mediation of mimesis mythos, the imitation of a plot. Mythos being plot and mimesis, creative imitation and redescription. All right. Moreover, the fiction effect of history can often enhance rather than diminish the task of standing for. I'm slightly reconnecting here after Aristotle. Um, the fiction effect I going for that goes for the essence rather than the facts actually enhances the task of standing for, because what it brings back is the past not just as a litany of one thing after another, chronicle, but rather one thing because of another, the, the complex causality of, of human emotion, of human interaction, of human complexity. Otherwise put, style can serve history, and this service entails ethical as well as poetical dimensions. It's not just that Michelet's history of the is beautifully written. It's also more politically and ethically responsible because it's beautifully written, um, powerfully written, to what actually happened. History, in the good sense, traversed by fiction, therefore serves to enhance our understanding of the past, verstehen, uh, our existential, ontological, human understanding of the past, and to suffer with those who have died, and who are gone and very often forgotten, and at the same time to explain, erklaren, the past. So the distinction in uh, the, even in Dilzai, you know, between the human sciences and the hard sciences, Geistwissenschaften and Naturwissenschaften, we still have here, you know, where's the science building, where's the arts building? I just had that conflict 20 minutes ago, again last year. <laughs> and humanity is somewhere in the middle. But basically, 
for the most part, the art, you know, the Geisteswissenschaften would have been the humanities, the arts, and the Naturwissenschaften. And Naturwissenschaften was given in these debates at the end of the 19th century, particularly in Germany, Dilthey and others, was given the role of the hard, exact, <coughs> empirical sciences, right? Dealing with the facts and mathematics and physics and whatnot. Whereas the, or at least mathematical calculation, whereas the arts then dealt with psychology, literature, philosophy, all the kind of artsy subjects. Um, and basically, what this argument, and I'm borrowing very much from, <coughs> from recurring Gadamer here, is, is saying is that you, we need both in terms of memory. You need both, both scientific explanation and um, literary understanding. We need the Geistwissenschaften and the Naturwissenschaften. So, to return to the text, the deployment of novelistic techniques by historians to place some past event or personage vividly before the reader's mind was already recognized, as I just mentioned by Aristotle in the, rhetor in the rhetoric this time, under the title of lexis or locution, what he called a way of making things, of making things visible as if they were present, as if they were present. So there's the telling it as it happened and telling it as if you were present when it happened. You need both. The danger is, of course, that the figural as if might collapse into a literal belief so that we would no longer merely see as and understand as, but make the mistake of believing we are actually seeing. And this hallucination of presence, easily conducive to dogmatism and fundamentalism, calls for ethical vigilance by historians in order to sustain a proper dialectical balance between empathic belief and critical disbelief. Um, the illusion of presence is not just those, say, who become psychotic and think they're actually Napoleon or they're actually Hitler. Um, but it's also fundamentalism. It is the belief, for instance, that when Salman Rushdie writes the satanic verses, this is literally, he's making a literal claim that Muhammad behaved like this. Um, Whereas Simon Rushdie would turn around and say, look, I'm a fiction writer. So the hallucination of presence is the refusal to acknowledge the, the distance of the as if. So it's a question of keeping the two in balance. And for Aristotle, this was very important in his notion of catharsis. Because whereas Elias and sympathy, uh, pity, brings us into an empathic identification with <laughs> those who suffer, uh, Phobos gives us what he called fear, keeps us at a distance so that we don't succumb to the hallucination of presence, to the illusion of immediacy. There's always the mediation of what? Of the plot, of the mythos mimesis. So we're present in movement towards the suffering of those who have died in the past in terms of the dead to the dead, but also the critical distance that keeps us at a certain distance and enables a certain what Aristotle called intellectual and theoretical understanding of the events. This would be represented in many respects by the chorus. And the understanding, you know, as Redmond has pointed out, is, is not an explanation of causes as such that explain it away, but it is an appreciation of, what, of, the, of the moral lesson, the political lesson, which the chorus intervening in the action, whether it's in Sophocles and Euripides or whether it's in Brecht, this distancing device, this estrangement device that keeps us at a certain intellectual distance, even as we are invited to emotionally and empathically connect with the characters. All right, so freedom from the illusion 
our hallucination of presence, is not the only responsibility of our hermeneutics of narrative. Equally important is the responsibility to refigure certain events of deep ethical intensity that conventional historiography might be tempted to overlook in favour of a positivistic explanation of things. In a case like the Holocaust, for example, such a practice of neutralisation would be totally inappropriate. Simply saying, six million bodies, full stop. No stories, no images, no memories. The biblical watchword, Sakor, remember, is more ethically fitting in such circumstances. This is something Primo Levi, for example, a survivor of the camps, makes hauntingly evident in his resolve to tell the story as it happened in the most vivid fashion imaginable. And he wrote six versions of the same history, six stories of the same history to, to do this. The recourse to narrative tropes and devices to achieve this impact is motivated throughout in Primo Levi by an ethical imperative. As he put it, people must never be allowed to forget lest it happen again. Or as he also put it in his conclusion to Sisset Danam, the need to recount to others, to make the others participate, acquired in us before and after our liberation the vehemence of an immediate impulse. And it was in response to such a need that I wrote my book, the impulse to keep on telling the story. And when he could not, no longer tell it, or when he felt, you know, like Becker's character, I can't go on, I'll go on, he went on six times, and then he jumped out of the sixth-story window of his apartment in, in, in Turin, and that was that. But what kept him going, as he said, was this impulse, this need, which he actually says was, was as deep as an elementary need to tell the story to others, so that the victims would not be forgotten, so that it would not happen again. So, as I say, it's not a matter of choosing or having to choose between ethics of empathy on the one hand and sort of scientific objectivity on the other, between sort of deep sympathy and empirical accuracy, it's a question of both and, not either of. All right, in Holocaust and genocide testimonies, to continue our example, rememoration takes on a moral character quite distinct from the triumphalist commemoration of history's great and powerful. Think of 1916 coming up, you know, and the intention of the government to proclaim 1916, to re-proclaim, good thing, but in addition to the, the triumph, maybe the triumph of failure, um, uh, commemoration, there's another work to be done also, I would think, and would suggest on, on the wounds, on the traumas, on what is forgotten, on the conflicting narratives, to complicate things. Where official history often tends to legitimate ideologies of conquest, narrative testimony moves in the opposite direction. Of course, when we're talking about conquest, 1916 is not a particularly good example, because in a way it is very often a narrative of the victims who sacrificed themselves. But if you think of French and British imperial history, you've got so many examples of this. And of course, recur writing in, in terms of French history history debates would think of all the great commemorations of you know, the Napoleonic and um, uh, uh, Louis XV, Louis XIV, and, and, and the great victories, and all those. If you walk through Paris, you'll see them everywhere. So you're saying in addition to that official history of commemoration, in terms of conquest, there is a need to move in the opposite direction towards a felt reliving of past suffering as if we were actually there. We being you know, the readers, listeners, Spectators. And the distinction is important, I think. The cause of horror needs narrative to plead its case, lest it slip irrevocably into oblivion. The horrible must strike us as horrible, 
I quote, recur horror attaches to events that must never be forgotten. It constitutes the ultimate ethical motivation for the history of victims. The victims of Auschwitz are par excellence the representatives in our memory of all history's victims. Victimization is the other side of history that no cunning of reason can ever justify and that instead reveals the scandal of every theodicy of history. Theodicy of history being that which would explain everything away. According to a ruse of reason a la Hegel um, or some enlightenment um, philosophy of inevitable progress or theodicy in terms of it's all part of God's will. So it resists the scandal of such a theodicy, secular or sacred, and attends to the particularity and the singularity of those who suffer. Of course, there's a double claim being made in that passage by Ricoeur, because he's saying, in attending to the singularity, we must also see these singular unique <coughs> victims as representatives in our memory of all history's victims. And that's not something everybody would agree with. The combination of a, a double fidelity, in a double to the singularity of the suffering and the quasi-universality of our ability to identify with the suffering of others. We'll come back to that uh, shortly. So in such instances, the refigurative power of testimony prevents historians from neutralising injustice. It prevents historiography from explaining history away. And this ethical task of preserving the specificity of past suffering persons from sanitising homogenization applies not only to positivist historians, but also to the theodicies of philosophers like Hegel, as I just mentioned in his Phenomenology of Spirit, or even Heidegger's musings on the destiny of techne, where gas chambers and combine harvesters are put into the same ontological category, ignoring the singularity of the victims, i.e. a sheaf of wheat on the one hand and a Jew or a gypsy or a homosexual or a communist on the other. The ethical role of imagination is vividly remembering, or is to vividly remember the horrible. And this is tied to a specific function of individuation, the need to respect the uniquely singular character of certain historical events. Dachau, Hiroshima, the Gulag, Mailai, Bloody Sunday, the Killing Fields, Sabran, Shatila, Tiananmen Square, etc. Each needs to be remembered in a very distinct way. And unique way. Hence the problem of memorials, you know. You can't just bring in a sort of a high international style of memorial. It has to be, uh, in each case, tailored to the particularity of the suffering of the particular horror. We could go into that, you know. Famine, Irish famine memorials, uh, the Vietnam memorial in Washington, etc. But each name is individually inscribed uh, in that wonderful monument. All right, such historical horrors of our century cannot be explained away, then, as cogs in some dialectical wheel. They are more than epiphenomena of the zeitgeist. Yet it's just this relativizing tendency that our current culture of simulation sometimes evinces when it reduces narrative to a play of imitation devoid of historical reference. Here I'm sort of going in slightly to a philosophical debate in postmodernism, where there is a sense that history is about language and a play of language and a play of signifiers, and as such uh, is not a hermeneutic process of someone saying something to someone about something. The about something disappears, the someone as author disappears, death of the author, the someone as the reader disappears, and the about something, the reference disappears. And Fred Jemison, in his critique 
of what he calls postmodernism as the logic of late capitalism, says that this produces a culture uh, of what he calls the postmodern cult of the depthless present. Postmodern cult of the depthless present, with no real sense of historical time back and forward, and an eclipse of what he calls the historically unique. But it's also a denial of what I call the, you know, the four S's in, in the hermeneutic model of history, someone saying something to someone about something. Because all you're left with is the something. Someone saying something, i.e. language. So it's the prison house of language, as Jemison calls it, or the ideology of the absolute text, as Ricoeur calls it. So the question of reference to what actually happened is completely occluded. Other commentators, Jean Baudrillard, for example, and Jean-François Lyotard, among them, seem at times to celebrate this liquidation of reference. Lyotard claims, for instance, that narrative forms of imagination betray the irrepresentable nature of the postmodern sublime, while Baudrillard hails the postmodern condition of what he calls irreference, or non-reference, where even the reality of war is reduced to TV, TV games of spectacle and simulation, as he says the Gulf War was a TV war. Now, he's got a point, but what it ignores is that it's not just a TV war. It is up to a point in terms of its mediation, but in terms of what it refers to, it's not. There are people actually dying out in that desert. We can no longer distinguish some postmodernists hold between what is real and unreal in the digital representation of things. And one is tempted to conclude that it's a short step from Baudrillard's kind of thinking here to the claims of revisionist historians like Faurisson or David Irvine that the gas chambers never existed, although Baudrillard would be miles apart from uh, the revisionists when it comes to Holocaust denial. In any case, what the postmodern cult of irrepresentability and irreference appears to put in question is the power of narrative to retrieve historically real events for our ethical consideration in the here and now. That's not to say that you go from sort of a, a sublime postmodernism to a crude realism. There's the medial position. All right, against such a, an extreme postmodernist position, relativist or, or uh, prospectivalist perhaps position, uh, we might reply, the more narrative singularize, sorry, let me take it again. The more narrative singularizes historical memories, the more we strive to understand them. And the more we understand them, the better able we are in the long run to explain them, rather than simply suffering them as emotional trauma. Again, it's not a question of opposing subjective understanding, verstehen, to objective explanation, erklar. It is a question of appreciating that explanation without narration is ultimately inhuman, pure scientific anonymous description of events, facts, just as imagination without explanation runs the risk of blind emotionalism, sentimentalism, irrationalism, and indeed sometimes violence. Think before you act. Sorry. So the figurative act of standing for the past provides us then with a figure to experience and think about what happened, to, fee to both feel and reflect upon. I quote again Ricoeur, fiction gives eyes to the horrified narrator, eyes to see and to read. The present state of literature on the Holocaust provides ample proof of this. One counts the cadavers or one tells the story of the victims. Or, better still, one does both. One counts the bodies, yes, there were six million, and one recounts their felt suffering. One reads Bruno Bettelheim, Primo Levi, and so on. 
If history telling were to forfeit this testimonial function of storytelling, it would risk becoming an indifferent spectator or a repository of dead facts. So the testimonial function is, of course, uh, you know, Buber, uh, Lévy, uh, Landsman, and so on. Neither option is acceptable. There are crimes, I quote again, that must not be forgotten, victims whose suffering cries less for vengeance than narration. The will not to forget alone can prevent these crimes from ever occurring again. But testimony is not just a personal matter. Here we return to the theme of your seminar. The ethical duty to remember is also a communal as well as individual responsibility. And it's precisely here that the ethical debt to the dead joins forces with the poetical power to narrate. And that we recall that the two modes of narrative, fiction and history, share a common origin in epic, which has the characteristic of preserving memories on the communal scale of societies. The epic, unlike the novel or the lyric, is not about individual subjective experience. It's not a Bildungsroman. It is about, and from the time of Homer to today, it's about shared memories. Placed in the service of the not-to-be-forgotten, this poetic power permits us to live up to the ethical task of collect what he called collective anamnesis, communal memory. So, I mean, to go back to Aristotle's characters in the poetics, in addition to the tragic and the comic um, and the lyric, uh, we, we need the epic. And one could do an interesting sort of parenthesis there on Joyce and Stephen Dedalus, who goes through the three categories in the portrait. Um, what, what is Joyce's writing? You know, it's clearly comic. Is it? Is it, com- is it a comic epic? Is it a comic tragic? To what extent is it the story of Stephen Dedalus and Bloom and Molly, you know, in stream, or to what extent does it extend and become a, a communal story of Dublin, but then, as he says, of all men? The more, sing- the more singular it becomes, the more universal, uh, strangely, in its, in its poetic appeal. And that's the paradox I'm, I'm trying to, to look at. In short, the ethical task of narrative history, to sum up this first part of the paper... Uh, may be summarized under the following aspects. One, a testimonial capacity to bear witness to the reality of the past with its untold suffering. Two, an analogizing capacity to make present those who are absent and other than ourselves. And three, an anticipatory capacity to project future possibilities where justice might at last prevail. This would be the utopian or the eschatological uh, power of memory. Uh, Walter Benjamin and, and, and the um, uh, uh, Herbert Marcuse also in the uh, Frankfurt School developed this idea of an anticipatory memory that we must remember the unacknowledged and the unfulfilled and the betrayed potentialities of the past in order to give ourselves a future. And in so doing, we honour those who remained without a voice or who spoke but were not able to put their words into action. In other words, the the defeated, the poor, the silenced, the disinherited. Uh, Anticipatory memory gives the possibility of retrieving those aborted and occluded potentialities and bringing them into the future. And that's a debt we have not just to the utopos of the future which calls us, but to those who cry out from the past, who in their suffering had sought for justice and liberty, but not reached it. Brecht, uh, Brecht at one point, I mean, it's slightly, a bit of a segue, but not much, 
talks about writing a lyric. He was asked, what was the most revolutionary thing you did in the war? Was it writing Uturu Yui, you know, denouncing Nazism and Hitler? He said, no. It was writing a lyric about an apple growing in a garden in Berlin. And I said, why, why was that? Because that by, by being able to remember a scene from my childhood where there had been an apple growing at a time of utter destitution, desolation, and inhumanity, it provoked a categorical imperative. Things were once otherwise things can be otherwise again. Things as they are can change. Things as they are must change. But you can't do that without having a certain recall, a revolutionary recall of what once was but was betrayed. In any case, second part of the paper, uh, a little shorter than the first, uh, narrative and memory. Historical communities are constituted in great part by the stories they recount to themselves and to others. Hence the importance of the rectifications that contemporary historians bring to bear on the historical accounts of their predecessors. This is true of the French debates on the meaning of the French Revolution, the German Streit on the meaning of the Second World War, the whole revisionist debates, uh, or the British-Irish debates on what happened in Northern Ireland, take the Sunday, bloody Sunday... Uh, Commission, or um, take the commemorations of the 400 years of the uh, founding of the Walls of Derry. Right. It is also, at a more complex level, of the, uh, of, of the classic case of biblical Israel, an historic spiritual community formed on the basis of the foundational narratives, especially Exodus and Genesis, which successive generations recount and reinterpret. Uh, so I'm um, slipping back here into, the, uh, into the, um, the case of Israel. This is why Judaism for Recur is considered the culture of the book par excellence. Moreover, it is precisely because stories proceed from stories in this manner that historical communities are ultimately responsible for the formation and reformation of their own identities. One cannot remain constant over the passage of historical time and therefore remain faithful to one's promises and covenants unless one has some minimal remembrance of where one comes from and of how one came to be what one is. Identity, therefore, is a form of narrative memory, or as Hegel put it, das, das Wesen ist das Gewesen, which for Ricoeur means that the Jew, and Leo Tarprick brings up this point too, is essentially an exemplary figure of not just the victim of Holocaust, but also of the one who remembers the book, the one who remembers that their identity is based on a book. And in principle, this should rule out any form of uh, tribal Zionism, let's put it like that, our, our occupation of Palestinian territories. Uh, I mean, I'm getting very political here. But th that, that, that is, um, as Sarit Larry and other young Jewish philosophers are saying, a betrayal of Judaism. Um, it's not just an offence to the Palestinians, which it clearly is, it's an offence to Judaism, because it is forgetting that the identity of the Jew is based not on the occupation of soil, but of story. And there can be relations between stories and soil, as we know. But whereas other, uh, um, others have a sense of identity that is more territorial, the Jew as the wandering Jew, as the Jew of the diaspora, uh, even the Jew, the returning Jew, must always look for the promised land. Which doesn't mean that Israel can't be a temporary promised land. Of course it can. 
but as Buber argued and Hannah Arendt, it should be a joint sovereignty by national state between the Palestinians and the Jews. That that would be more in keeping and more faithful to Judaism in terms of um, an identity based on the book that remembers that it is made up of stories going back to Exodus and uh, Genesis. And indeed, Islam is based on, on the book. Um, uh, I'm working at the moment on a guest book project where we have Jewish and uh, uh, Israeli and um, Palestinian students working together. You know, and they're recounting, retelling their narratives to each other, and then they co-create together a third narrative. And one that I received recently, they make short six-minute videos, was uh, an Israeli student who, they went back to Mount Moriah, which is one of the founding memory narratives, of course, of both Judaism and Islam. And in the Jewish version, it's Isaiah, it's uh, Isaac, who is the promised son, the favorite son. But in the, um, in the, uh, in the uh, Islamic version, right, in the Quran and in the Hadith, it's not uh, Isaac, it's Ishmael. So you've got the two brothers, the same father, who gives rise in the same event to two radically, well, are they radically different? The twin brothers go in opposite directions. But it's the same story. So they recount their different versions through the Torah and the Quran, and then they co-create uh, crisscrossings uh, of uh, Isaac and Ishmael meeting today in contemporary Jerusalem. Um, but that's kind of a work that can be done by remembering the past in terms of an identity of narratives and seeing how they can actually shift and be redefined for the future, giving a future to the past. All right, along with the ethic of responsibility to remember goes an attending ethic of flexibility. Once we recognize, as I've just been saying, that one's identity is fundamentally narrative in character, one discovers an ineradicable openness and indeterminacy at the root of one's collective memory. Each nation or state discovers that it is at heart an imagined community, as Benedict Anderson put it. And that means that qua narrative construction, it can be reinvented and reconstructed. After such a discovery of one's narrative identity, it is more difficult to make the mistake of taking oneself literally, of assuming that one's collective identity goes without saying. That's why, at least in principle, the tendency of a nation towards xenophobic or insular nationalism can be resisted by its own narrative resources to imagine itself otherwise, either through its own eyes or those of others. A nation, of course, which is an imagined community, a constructed community, uh, in its roots, however, natus has the whole notion of natality and therefore birth and therefore blood. And uh, that, together with gens, I mean, the two earliest uh, words for nation were gens and natio. So you had natus, um, uh, nature. So, you know, your, your identity is natural. It's not cultural. It's natural. It's given. It's given by birth and given by blood and given by territory and inheritance. Uh, and then gens, of course, from genitus, um, uh, also gives the notion of the gentleman who is the good uh, citizen, but built into it etymologically is this claim that it is, it is genital. It is a question of genus and generation. So that's, a, so you've got a kind of a, a, a conflict built into the very words themselves. Uh, is this natural? Is this cultural? We can come back to that. Fundamentalism arises when a nation forgets its own narrative origins. And this bears out Adorno's state adage that all reification is forgetting. The nation becomes reified, the state becomes reified. 
But how do you remember in the right way with falling into another kind of reification of commemoration, of fetishistic commemoration? And that's not an easy one in these years of great commemoration in this country as elsewhere. Thus, the solution to the Northern Ireland problem, for example, may well reside in the willingness of both British and Irish nationalists, unionists, to exchange narrative memories which ground their respective national identities, thereby learning to see each other through alternative eyes. And this is something we're trying to do in Derry at the moment with the Nerve Centre, where they bring in Catholic and Protestant schools. And remember, in Northern Ireland, 80% of schools are still denominationally divided. I mean, Good Friday Agreement, great politically, <laughs> but on the ground, culturally and religiously, there's still huge divisions. And, you know, you know the peace fences and so on and peace divides in, in, in Belfast are not going away. So what they're doing is they're, they're, they're working on this um, project called Teaching Divided Histories with guest book and they produce these, again, these videos. But a few of them are working on the walls of Derry and the different uh, transgenerational memories around that. You know, for the Protestant, this wall saved us you know, from barbarism and, and we were the gentlemen and civic rights and so on, the Bill of Rights. The Apprentice uh, Boys Parade have that built into their charter. The walls of Derry saved civilization. And the Catholic kids as well, you, we were thrown into the bog side. Um, so radically different. And then they co-create together in a contemporary narrative. They give a future to their past by working together on a story from these two conflicted histories. If we have time, maybe we can come back to that in discussion at the, at the end. Um, or let me give you one other example that came in recently. It was from Mitrovica. So uh, the, the Albanian Islamic Kosovar was, was uh, recounting the Battle of Kosovo through a song which said, you know, we Albanians, and it gives their particular story, um, we Kosovars, and it was a great victory. And then for the Serbs, it's the very contrary. But it's the same song. Exactly the same song, describing the same battle, the same geography, the same climate, the same weather, the same day, but the words are different in terms of the interpretation of what went on. For one, it's a great victory. For the other, it's a great defeat. And then they, they co-create the, the, the lyrics of the song and sing across the river Ibar, where two, which is a river that goes through Mitrovic and divides two municipalities, Two languages, two religions, two peoples. And it's a very poignant uh, video of the two singing across this river that divides them. In any case, reification as forgetting. Reified memory expressing itself in compulsive repetition and resentment may find its best antidote in alternative memory, liberating one's historical consciousness by remembering oneself as another. Remembering yourself as the enemy. You remember yourself as yourself, you remember yourself as the enemy, and then you co-create with the enemy a new story. It's only by means of the latter kind of memory, alternative memory, what I'm calling alternative memory, that pardon may release the historical past into a different, freer future. For genuine amnesty does not and cannot issue from forgetfulness, amnesia. You know, we'll just forget about all that. We've had too much memory in Ireland, too much memory in Israel, too much memory in Germany. Forget about all that. Germany never talks about the past. You listen to Angela Merkel's speeches, never mentions the German past, the German nation, the German people. It's the German economy. It's very interesting. There's a real identity in that. Now, we understand the sensitivities, but by not doing that work, the work isn't done. Um, so, 
Amnesty is not about amnesia. It can only come from a remembering which is prepared to forgive the past by emancipating it from the deterministic stranglehold of violent obsession and revenge. I'm departing there from, from, from Germany. Genuine pardon involves not a forgetting of the events themselves, but a different way of signifying them, a different way of reconfiguring our debt to the dead, a debt which otherwise may paralyze memory and by implication impede our capacity to recreate ourselves in a new future. The proper task of amnesty, therefore, is not to efface the memory of crimes. It is rather to remember them differently, that is, in a way which may dissolve the debt they have accrued. As Hannah Rent says in her wonderful work on, on forgiveness, you know, you, you, you forgive the, the, the debt, but you don't forget the act. You release the actor from the debt, but you do not forget to condemn the act. It's a version of Augustine. I mean, she did her, her, her PhD on Augustine, where Augustine says in the Confessions, you condemn the sin and you forgive the sinner. But you can't forget the sin. You can't forget the crime. And Nietzsche's kind of active Vergessenheit, let's just you know, go for the future in untimely meditations, as I say, the use and abuse of history, where you, active you actively forget the past, and you will your future all very well, but history doesn't go away. As Freud reminds us, it comes back again and again in his rejoinder to Nietzsche on that subject. In any case, forgiveness, I quote, recur, is a sort of healing of memory, the completion of its mourning. Delivered from the weight of debt, memory is liberated for great projects. Forgiveness gives memory a future. So the claim here by Bricker and by Hannah Arendt is that it's not a contradiction to say that genuine amnesty is the strict corollary of forgiving memory, even as it is the strict contrary of repetition memory. Repetition memory is remembering pathologically, badly. Uh, what Freud would call melancholy. You're locked into your past and it's acting itself out because you're not doing the work. You're not working it through. So it is a compulsive, a compulsive, repetitive, ritualistic acting out. Uh, resentment, ressentiment, being precise that instead of living, you are ressentir. You're always reliving. As opposed to mourning, which in his essay, Mourning and Melancholy, is the liberation, is the working through of the past the past traumas, the past pains, uh, the past debts, and then uh, letting it go. But you can't let go of the lost object, the forgotten object, until you revisit it through active forgiving memory, uh, which he calls mourning, and then you let it go. And it's interesting that in mourning, somebody dies, one of the phases of mourning, as we all know from Kubler-Roth, is anger. There's a huge sense of anger that this has happened that the loved one has disappeared, or that something awful has been done to one. So you've got to read it, and then, uh, by working through it, uh, through, through narrative imagination and narrative memory, and this crisscrossing of story and history, which is not the reduction of one to the other, from, from it, then there can be a liberation into the future. But turning your back on it, active Augustenheit doesn't work. You forgive the actor, but not the act. All right, critical caution is clearly called for here. Narrative memory is never innocent. It's an ongoing conflict of interpretations, a battlefield of competing meanings. Every history is told from a certain perspective in the light of certain prejudices. 
Memory, as suggested above, is not always on the side of the angels. It can easily lead to false consciousness and ideological closure, as much as to openness and tolerance. This distorting power is often ignored by certain contemporary advocates of narrative ethics uh, and politics, like Alastair McIntyre, Martha Nussbaum, Wayne Booth, who tend to downplay sometimes the need for a hermeneutic of critical suspicion. The destructive potential of narrative can also be neglected by those advocates of a sort of the Nietzschean postmodernism that says, forget about the past, and we can dispense with historical memory and simply will the future. I've already mentioned that. So, to better adjudicate the critical stakes involved in such debates, let me return finally to the example of the Holocaust. Of the, Holocaust. the first hand narrative cited in Lawrence Langer's Holocaust testimonies, no less than the literary witnesses of authors like Lévy, Melina, Elie Wiesel, are reminders of just how indispensable narrative memory is for the ethical remembrance of genocide. For Prime Lévy, as I mentioned earlier, the need to recount his memories was an ethical duty so that other, others could participate in the events which might otherwise be forgotten, and by being forgotten, repeat themselves. As he said, the victims would be murdered twice. They were murdered by the Nazis, but they would be murdered twice by you forgetting that they were murdered. For Wiesel, the reason he tells and retells these narratives is to give the victims the voice that was denied them by history. Or as one of his characters put it, searching for a former Holocaust survivor in a New York psychiatric hospital, I quote, perhaps it's not given to humans to efface evil, but they may become the consciousness of evil, end of quote. So recounting is a way of becoming such an ethical consciousness. For just as the Greeks knew that virtues were best transmitted by remembering and retelling the admirable deeds of the heroes, as Aristotle says, you know, if you want to know what courage is, you tell the story of Achilles. Uh, what constancy is, you tell the story of Penelope. So too, the horror of moral evil must be retrieved from oblivion by means of narrative memory. It's clear that the history of victims calls for a mode of remembering different from ritualistic commemoration of heroes and gods. And here we need little narratives, the little narratives of the vanquished and forgotten, as opposed to the grand narratives of the victors. Reminiscence of suffering has just as much need to be felt as reminiscence of glory and triumph. We need to remember... Um, the little stories of Achilles and Priam, for example, rather than the great uh, battle and, and, and struggles between Achilles and his enemies. Historical horror requires, in other words, to be served by an aesthetic quite as powerful and moving as historical triumph, perhaps even more powerful if it is to compete for the attention of the public at, at large. We need to have a sensation of horror and suffering as much as of commemoration of the great deeds. It is not enough that Shoah, for example, Claude Landsman's film about the Holocaust, be screened in elite art house cinemas or in late night highbrow TV specials on RT, Channel 4, PBS, whatever. The story of the Holocaust demands to be heard and seen by as many people as possible in every new generation. And this is at bottom an ethical demand, hence the importance of PBS to show Schindler's List to every school in the country, realizing that at that, stage, at that point, in 1990, sorry, 1997, March 1997, 70% of US school children did not know of the Holocaust. Sometimes an ethics of memory is obliged to resort to an aesthetics of representation or refiguration. Viewers need not only to be intellectually aware of the horrors of history, 
they also need to experience the horror of the suffering as if they were actually there. Memory not only illuminates, it also illustrates. And part of this illustration is its use of images to strike us in the sense of striking home the horror of evil and the grace of goodness. Uh, one small anecdote, and then I'll conclude with the final paragraph, but I was giving a talk once on the debate between Landsman's Shoah and um, Spielberg's Schindler's List with regard to the appropriate ethical <clears throat> and political debt to the dead. And um, without going into it in, in detail, Landsman basically said you can't use fiction or drama or characters to represent uh, the Holocaust. It, it can only be one-to-one, -one, black and white, interviews, to camera with survivors. So the idea of bringing Lim Neeson and Ben Kingsley and so on is just you know, outrageous, not to mention the, the Jewish victims themselves. Anyway, I was going through the pros and cons of this, the ethics and aesthetics of representing the Holocaust, in McGill University in Montreal. At the end of it, a little old woman came down and she came up to me and she said, uh, Professor Carney, she said, I was one of the, I was on Schindler's List. And she said, you know, I was never able to talk about it, think about it, remember it, never mentioned it to my husband, my children, until I saw the movie. And I saw myself being played by another person, a character, a fictional character, and then I was able to relive my past. So it was a detour via fiction that enabled uh, the opening up of what otherwise was, was lost to aesthesis, was lost to feeling and sensation, and that had caused in her life huge you know, uh, trauma, uh, compulsive uh, behavior. A post-traumatic post distress disorder well before its time. So let me sum up, final paragraph. We may say in summary that if Landsman and Lyotard, well, that, let's stick to Landsman, was correct in stressing memory's ability to attest to the incomparable singularity of events like Auschwitz, Ricoeur is right to counterbalance this by emphasizing how memory also testifies to the representative universality of good and evil, the ability to connect the suffering of the Jews with the suffering of the Armenians and the suffering of the Ugandans and the suffering of etc. So there's a quasi-universality in the very singularity of the remembrance. Hence, I would say the importance of the famine memorial in New York, the Irish famine memorial, which is placed beside the Jewish memorial, uh, just in front of the 9-11 memorial, and looking out to Ellis Island, which is where all the immigrants, as you know, came in. It's an intertextual uh, sighting of it uh, to connect with the suffering of others rather than closing in on uh, uniquely singular tribal suffering. The truth is no doubt to be found in some kind of Aristotelian mean which combines both the ethical duty to honour the unique and the singular and to communicate in a quasi-universal way across races, across peoples, across cultures and across times. That is what a practical wisdom of historical narrative requires in our age of easy forgetfulness, a proper balance between the dual fidelities of memory to one singularity and two the communicability of past events. Final quote from Ricoeur, we must remember because remembering is a moral duty. We owe a debt to the victims. And the tiniest way of paying our debt is to tell and retell what happened at Auschwitz. By remembering and retelling, we not only prevent forgetfulness from killing the victims twice, we also prevent their life stories from becoming banal and the events from appearing as necessary. 
If I had more time, we could unpack that and unpick that you know, duty to stop history from becoming banal or appearing as necessary. Boredom and theodicy are the two extremes to be avoided in the recounting of memory, and communal memory. <clears throat> Last word. Sometimes in some places, Bosnia, Rwanda, perhaps it's important to let go of history, to heat Nietzsche's counsel to forget the past, in order to surmount the instincts of resentment and revenge. Some people have argued that. At other times and in other places, Auschwitz being a time and place par excellence, I think, it's essential to remember the past in order to honour our debt to the dead and to assure it never happens again. Narrative remembrance can serve these two functions. It can help us to represent the past as it really was and to reinvent it as it might have been. In fiction, the role of reinvention is what matters most, a novel like War and Peace, whereas in historical testimony, Michelet, the function of veridical recall claims primacy. Distinguishing between these two separate, if often overlapping, functions of fiction and history is, I believe, of crucial ethical and political import, just as crucial as discerning when it is right to remember and when it is better to forget, or indeed how much we should remember and how much we should forget. Thank you.